0: You are listening to a message from Soundwords. To find information about our ministry, please visit our website at soundwords.org. You can also download our free app from iTunes or Google Play to access more great sermons. We're going to the book of Ephesians, which we've been studying together. The book of Ephesians, and we're coming to the 4th chapter. And it's characteristic of Paul's epistles. The book of Ephesians is broken down into two pretty clear divisions. The first three chapters, the Spirit of God directs Paul to lay the doctrinal foundation. He's talked about in chapter 1, as we've reviewed several times, the sovereignty of God. The one who before the foundation of the world in chapter 1, verse 4. Chose us in Christ for the wonderful salvation that God would provide in him. He predestined us in verse 5 to be his own sons, the adoption as sons and all the blessings that that brings, the inheritance that will be ours in Christ. These were unfolded in chapter 1. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they might grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding and greater appreciation of God's sovereignty and what he has accomplished on our behalf his own doing. Chapter 2 reminded us of how serious our lost condition was. We were dead in trespasses and sins. He's writing to the Ephesians he tells them they were He's drawing attention particularly to their condition as Gentiles cut off from all the promises that God had given to the nation Israel. They were under the control of the devil. They were led by the course of this fallen godless world. They lived in the lust of their flesh totally given over to that, and that's the description of everyone apart from Christ. We are without hope in the world. As he goes on to talk about that, God is rich in mercy. He intervened in verse 8 of chapter 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. That says it very succinctly. It's by God's grace through faith in what God has done and provided for us. It's not of ourselves. Sadly, to this day, 2,000 years after Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, people still think they'll be saved by their works, by going to church, by being baptized, by partaking of communion or sacraments or doing the best they can and on and on. That's sad because God has already done everything that could be done. He provided his son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. So that he could give us the free gift, a redundancy, a free gift, which is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is not of works. No one could boast. But note verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, we have to keep the order here. The order is so important, it determines where you will spend eternity, heaven or hell. It is not faith plus works results in salvation. Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians and said, anybody who teaches that is cursed to hell, anathema. But faith in Christ results in salvation, which leads to good works. Good works are the result of having been saved by faith in Christ. Now, that's not to minimize the importance of works. The salvation that God brings to a life transforms the life. That's where we're going in chapters 4, 5, and 6. If you've experienced the salvation that God in his sovereignty has provided and brought about, if that has truly happened in your life, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away, new things have come. That's what Paul wrote at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're new creatures, we're new creations. God has done the work. And then at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he put us together. God saves us individually, but that salvation is not just individual. When he saves us, he places us into his family. It's a total new entity that did not exist before Acts chapter 2, as we have it in our Bibles. It's called the church. He brings people, whatever their nationality, before God was working specifically in and through the nation Israel. But now, because of the rejection of the Messiah by Israel, Israel has been set aside, not rejected by God, but they are under God's judgment, and the work of God in salvation is no longer focused in that physical nation Israel. Some Jews individually are saved. But God has put together a new entity for this period of time when Israel is under God's judgment. It's called the church. The end of verse 15 of chapter 2 said that he in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man. Thus establishing peace. He might reconcile them both in one body Through the cross, the body of Christ is the church. He'll go on to use the analogy of a building. And he's placed all the pieces, the building blocks, together. The diversity that comes together, your nationality is not important. Your social standing, master, slave, rich, poor. We are brought together in a relationship of oneness in Christ. Paul told us in chapter 3, the reason he knew that is God revealed it to him. Now, what he wants to do in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 is show how that work of God in our salvation has also planned and brings about a new life. Good works, works that are consistent with the character of God. One of the ways you see this In the book of Ephesians, verbs that are in imperative mood. An imperative is a command. You can tell it because the Greek verb, when it's in imperative mood, has its own form. So you know that's a command. In English, we do it by inflection, by putting an exclamation point at the end of that statement. So it's known to be a command, something forceful. There are 41 commands in the book of Ephesians. One command in the first three chapters, 40 commands in the last three chapters. I tell you now, here's what we must do, how we must live in light of the salvation that God has brought to us. This is very important. Sometimes dispensationalists, which we are, we take a literal interpretation of the Bible consistently, including the prophetic portions. We believe that Israel is separate from the church, and God's work in this day is focused in the church. This is the time of the fullness of the Gentiles, as Romans 11 talks about. Some Jews are saved, but primarily it is a work focused in the Gentile world. There'll come a time when the rapture of the church will result in the removal of the church from the earth and God will resume and complete his program with the nation Israel. We are sometimes accused of being antinomian. That's a word. If you look it up in the dictionary, you'll find it there. It means to be without law, lawless. Because we do not believe we are under the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was given to Israel. It was to govern their conduct until Christ came. Paul talked about in the book of Galatians. With the coming of Christ, the Mosaic law had served its purpose. But when Israel rejected their Messiah and his rule over them, then a new part of God's plan, and we noted, this is not new to God. God didn't have to come up with plan B. This is something planned in eternity past, as we saw in chapter 1. That the church would be established, a new entity that would bring Jew and Gentile together and their nationality would not be a focus or important. That's why Galatians chapter 3 says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, and so on. Those distinctions are not essential. How do we live? Now, even those of us who hold to these distinctions sometimes go light on the commands. I mentioned there are 40 commands in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and that doesn't tell the whole story. When God simply makes a statement, not even in an imperative mood, that's authoritative. If you're in the military and your commanding officer tells you to do something, whether he does it in the form of a command or a simple statement, it carries authority. There's authority in everything God tells us to do, whether he does it in the simple indicative statement or he does it in the form of a command. The form of the commands just to remind us how important it is. I say this because it's not optional. We say we're not saved by works. But works are a necessary result. A changed life are a necessary result of the work of God's salvation. You'll note chapter four opens up, therefore. That therefore builds. As a result of what I have said in the first three chapters, as we have it, obviously, there weren't chapters when Paul wrote it. It was a letter without chapters and verses. But those first three chapters, in light of that, problem with many. Even evangelical Bible-believing Christians, they're always starting in chapter 4 because I want something practical. I want something that tells me how to live, how to have a better family, how to raise teenagers, how to, how to, how to. But if you don't have the doctrinal foundation, you're building on sand. We saw what happens when a building, something in the foundation gives way. Jesus warned about that in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to have sound doctrine, solid teaching. And now we are being built on that. We saw that at the end of chapter 2. The church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, the central foundation stone from which all the building is constructed. So if you're not familiar with the first three chapters, you haven't been here, and you ought to keep them in mind. Keep going back and reading, rereading them. You'll note he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That was the discussion of chapter 1, 2, and 3. Now how we walk, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I saw this word walk earlier. Come back to chapter 2 of Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly, there it is, walked. It denotes the conducting of your life. How you live. What you do. The characteristic of your life. You formerly walked according to the course of this world. Your thing was shaped. Remember Romans 12, 1 came to the same point. Do not be conformed to this world. That's the way we formerly lived. The world shaped our thinking, our behavior, according to the prince of the power of the air. Only two kinds of people in the world. Those are the slaves of the living God and those who are the slaves of the devil. For, For salvation in Christ, everybody is a slave and does the will of the devil. Remember in John chapter 8, Jesus talked to the very religious Jewish leaders and said, you are of your father, the devil, and you do his will. Being religious doesn't free you from the authority of the devil. Only Christ can do that. You walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. We all too formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, deserving of wrath, destined for wrath. That's where you are apart from Christ. But you note the change. We noted that down in verse 10. The result of God's saving grace, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would, here we go with our word, walk in them. Justification and sanctification are distinct, but they are never separate. The great reformer John Calvin made that observation. We distinguish between justification and sanctification, but we must never separate justification and sanctification. When God brings his salvation to you, he cleanses you within. It's the heart that's deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, Jeremiah tells us. God cleanses us from our sin. He makes us new. Romans chapter 6 develops that as it moves in to talk about our sanctification. Living out now a new life, a holy life as saints of God, God's holy ones. God prepared these walks as the outgrowth, outflow, result of our salvation. Anyone who claims to place their faith in Christ, but is living according to the pattern of the first three verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians, is a liar. God's salvation is a package. It includes new life. That's Romans chapter 6, which we studied recently in our Study of the book of Romans. We die with Christ. We're raised with Christ, in new life. I stress this because you can grow up in a church like this. A Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Go to the Bible school from youth up and be on your way to an eternal hell. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you truly trusted him? If you have, your heart has been changed. Your life is now different. It is new. How many times over the years I had people come and say, oh, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. When I was at Bible school, I prayed and trusted Christ. What is in your life that evidence? Well, I haven't been living for him. Go on. Well, somewhere when I got to high school, you know, I got off track, but I know I'm saved. Well, God better know it. When he saves you, he changes your life. He makes you new. So I want to be clear on the biblical doctrine. No, your works don't help you get saved. But when God saves you, you become his child. Partake of his nature. You don't become deity. But his character is produced in you, in me. That's the amazing thing. So the walk we're talking about, that contrast, chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 2, you formerly walked one way, but now in verse 10, we walk a totally different walk. What he's doing in chapter 4, and he'll do through chapters 4, 5, and 6, is tell us what that new walk is like. None of us are perfectly there yet, but there is to be progress We are a work in progress. You ought to see it in your life. Others ought to see it in your life. Because what he's talking about in the book of Ephesians is God has put us together in a body called the church. And our relationship together is part of his purpose and program for us growing together. There is no place in the plan of God for that isolated, I go my own way. I've had people, who profess to be believers, say, I am a believer. I have the Holy Spirit. I have my Bible. I don't need to be part of church. When you start telling God the way it's going to be, you need to back up and reconsider. Do I really know him? The child of God obeys God. Doesn't tell God. So we begin Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul, remember, is a Roman prisoner as he writes this letter. We call it one of the prison epistles Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. He mentioned this in chapter 3 of Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul kept it in perspective. He's not moaning as we talked. Before about, oh, I'm a prisoner. It's so difficult. It's hardship. It's unpleasant. I can't be free to go and share the gospel. And other well, Paul talks about I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm here because I'm faithful to him. I'm carrying out his will. He's sovereign still. He put me here for his purpose. I'm thankful Paul was imprisoned. I'm not glad. But I'm thankful for what God did because he wrote the letter to the Ephesians while he was imprisoned. And that's contributed immeasurably to my growth and the growth of his church. You know, we don't want to miss God using you where he puts you. Here he says in chapter 4, verse 1, a prisoner of the Lord. It's a little different preposition there. He said he was a prisoner of of Christ Jesus. Here he says he is the prisoner in, use a little different preposition, in the Lord. And that's the sphere in which he lives. I live my life in the Lord, in his will for me, inseparably to my relationship. The chains are Roman chains. The limitation is imposed by the Romans, brought about by Jewish influence, but I don't lose perspective. God's never out of control in my life. The things that come into my life are what he planned for me. My focus is to be used in the greatest way possible, the way he's chosen for me. That takes some of the frustration. We have bemoan what has happened. Oh, this, oh, that. Oh, if it was only different. Oh. oh, wait a minute. We go back to chapter one. Who's sovereign? That's my security. Everything's under control. The Romans aren't in control here. The Jews aren't in control. Paul's God is in control. He's right where God would have him for God's purposes at that time. That doesn't mean any less sinful for what's been done to him. But what's Paul going to do? Give up being used of the Lord? God's in control. He's a prisoner in the Lord. I implore you. I exhort you. King James said, I beseech you and It's all right, but it's too soft a word. He's exhorting them. This is not an option. I'm exhorting you to walk in a manner worthy, consistent with the calling with which you've been called. Now, again, when the evangelical church gets weaker in its doctrine, in its clear teaching of biblical truths, they lose the standard. You walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That word called, we're not going to go back. We've been through it before. It is the effectual call of God that draws you to salvation. You get it pictured in its complete in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, starting all things work together for good to those of God, who those who are the called according to his purpose. And that call... It intervened. He planned our salvation before the creation. We saw that in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 4. Those opening verses before the foundation of the world. He predestined us. But in time, he reached out and he called us, a call that's always effective, that draws us. And resulted in the salvation and all that Paul's unfolded in these first three chapters uh, that... Brought us from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. Set us free from the control of sin and the devil. Brought us under the authority and control of the living God. Walk worthy. You don't walk like you were before. You don't live like you lived before. We just stand out like the proverbial sore thumb. Church, we want to fit in. We're not like them anymore. We were like them. Don't forget that. Paul told Titus, remind them, don't forget, you were just like them. Otherwise, we get that spiritual arrogance. I don't know how they could live like that. Oh, they're so dirty. I even, they hate to go to work. I don't like to be around them. Well, la da What were you like before God intervened in your life? How did God see you? We're told, dead, conformed to the world, consumed by your ungodly lusts. That's the power of his salvation. But now that you've experienced, you don't continue to live like the pig in the mud. you want a little more detail? He's going to give that. Look at verse 2. You walk worthy. What does that mean? You walk with all humility. Not just with a little dab of humility in there. With all humility, all gentleness. Words together here. Humility is just being humble. We never outgrow the need for more of that. That's a process. But it ought to characterize our lives. Not that, oh, I walk. Well, I know I'm a nobody. What do I have to contribute? That's not humility. That's selfish arrogance all about me. And that's where the world is. But that's not what it is. It's realizing how amazing and wonderful it is that God has saved me. I was a wretched, undeserving sinner. I had no claim on God. He didn't owe me anything. But God in his grace saved me. And as we'll see when we get further in our study in chapter 4, he also gifted me to serve him in the way he chose. He's put me in places, in a job, in a place, in a relationship, and wherever it is that I might honor him. So there's no place for this passive, self-absorbed whatever there, but a true humility. Now, as he wrote, let each of you consider others as more important than himself. If we're going to function together in a body as God intends us, I have to have an appreciation for you, what God has done in your life, how God is using you, how important it is. That God has placed me in a body like this so that I might grow with what others can contribute to my life and do. That doesn't mean I become selfish because then I'm looking for a place. And Lord, I want to be used. I don't have to be in an important place. I just want to be where you want me in this body to be used in the way you want me to be used. That's humility. It's not standing aside and observing. We you talk about the Bible school, people pour themselves into different ways. Some of the contributions are more noticed, others aren't. Obviously, in this body, as we'll talk about the gifts, I get more notice than almost anybody. The importance, though, of every part functioning. I tell you, there would have been no vacation Bible school if it all depended on me. In fact, there wouldn't be much going on in this church about except Sunday morning, and then... Don't know about that. We all contribute. So humility, a proper recognition and appreciation of God's work in my life. And it's an ongoing work and it's a ongoing work in your life. That's humility. Gentleness. King James, I think, has meekness. That's too soft a word. One described it as strength under control. I like what one Greek commentator said and he was quoted by others. He said... A person who is gentle is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. There's a certain strength in that. It's the word used if you were training a horse. You know, when you get a break, they call it breaking a horse, the horse is power is brought under control. So the horse learns when to do what. He doesn't lose his strength. Strength is just brought under control and used properly. That word gentleness would carry that. We well, don't understandably. There was a time Jesus was angry, went into the temple with a switch and drove the money changers out. He was angry at their sin. But it was not uncontrolled anger. Was it was a time to be angry. At time is gentle and understanding. Come back to Matthew chapter 11. There are many verses we could look at in this section. I've limited them. Invitation here, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is a world of misery, uncertainty, unhappiness, discontent. I need to work through all the details of that. I can't solve that for you. But I can invite you a person who can take care of it all. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. The peace of soul, of heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and here's our two words in reverse order, gentle and humble. We had humble and gentle. We're to be like Christ. Humble and gentle in heart. You will find rest for your souls. You find it in Christ. You place your faith in him and your life becomes his life. You are no longer your own because you've been bought with a price. He brings that peace to a heart. Uh, That's why I always start here. People profess to be believers, but they're unhappy, they're miserable, they're discontent, they're up, they're down. Let me invite you. Oh, I've trusted him. Yes, you're sitting here with your miserable life by your own testimony and you want to tell me, how could you dare to make a uh, accusation against the living God like that? Well, it's not his fault. Well, then don't tell me that you belong to him. When you come to Christ, he gives you rest in heart. He brings you humility, gentleness. He is and gentle. That's where I get it, because I come a partaker of the divine nature. It's something new he's done in me. We want to be like Christ. Come back to Ephesians. All humility and gentle with patience. There's another great word, patience. uh, Words don't always, just by their derivation, give you their meaning, but this one does. It's just a compound word, long and tempered. You're long-tempered. Uh, you don't lose your temper. Uh, you're patient. You know, this is talking about how we get along together with one another. We're humble. We're gentle. We're understanding. We're patient with one another. Uh, patience. We don't give up on each other. We don't lose patience with one another. We don't get exasperated with one another. Well realize we're all at different stages, we're all going to our goal is to help one another. We don't all agree on everything. The doctrine, that's what binds us together. Around we'll our common faith in Christ in the truth that He has given. But these other things, I have so many people that have become upset with the church. And I had a time where I just took a whole week and went through it. But you know what they all started at? This is not about doctrine. We don't have any disagreement in doctrine. Well, then it's not something we have to fight about. Nothing we have to disagree with. You can have your opinions. I can have my opinions. We go on together. If this is the church for everybody of the same opinions, we're going to be down to just me and just you and your church. The whole thing is what? God put us together so we're patient with one another. I don't have to be patient with the person who just like me and likes the things I like and orders their pizza with no cheese like I order my pizza. We're good for each other. Likes the same cars. Boy, we got so much in common. You know, it's the people you disagree with. It's the people that rub you a little bit the wrong way. A Jew and a Gentile. A Jew can still have a Sam sandwich, but he has to be comfortable sitting there eating his lamb sandwich and the Gentiles eating a ham sandwich and neither one's upset with the other that's fine you don't have to stop being a Jew you don't have to be everything I am and we're patient also we realize yeah there's going to be things spiritually there we have to grow in Showing tolerance for one another in love. You see this is one of the one another. Because God has put us together. If we don't realize that, we are not really clear on our salvation. What has he said in the first three chapters? God has given specific, clear revelation. What he is doing today, he is putting the people together with all their diversity, most significant at this time, Jews and Gentiles, together in one unified entity called the church, the body of Christ. And all those external things are not relevant. That doesn't mean Paul quit being a Jew. He could tell on occasion, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. He has certain things that are his. That's, That's fine. But you can't make that a dividing issue in the church. We start churches for different things. We start churches because we want the people like these to be comfortable there. God's bringing people who would never be comfortable together, together. That's what he said. He didn't say, let's start a Jewish church, then let's start a gentle church. That had taken care of a lot of the problems. Except it wasn't God's plan. So part of that conflict that keeps going on that Paul has to address is Jew and Gentile have to learn that the spiritual work that God has done has made you one with your differences. Tolerance for one another. And then he switches to some participles here. We have his I-N-G words. Being diligent, zealous, spudadzo. Have a zeal, a diligence. You're going to apply yourself to this. Being diligent, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Note, it doesn't say to produce the unity. Who produced that? Back to chapters 1, 2, and 3. The Spirit who put us together in one body. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, and following in chapter 3, Paul developed that. God revealed it. There's no excuse for us not understanding it. No matter what you think about the different people and who you like better in the congregation, we're all going to be, maybe feel more comfortable with one another. That's fine. I'm not going to be as close to everyone. You can't be. There'll be people, maybe you're close to, but you don't want to have a clique that excludes others. Uh, We have to be comfortable serving, functioning together. We preserve the unity of the Spirit. That's why I say anytime we begin to fracture the unity we're not fighting against one another. We're fighting against the spirit of God and what he's doing and what God's purpose and plan is. We minimize this and we become selfish in our outlook. This is serious matter. God says if we're walking worthy of our calling, we are applying ourselves diligently to preserve the unity that the Spirit has created among us. Anytime I'm working against that, I'm working against God. The Scripture is not fuzzy on this. But somehow we become comfortable thinking we're justified in doing what God says is the opposite of what he says we are required to do. We must be careful. I have to be, you have to be. He wouldn't put it here if it wasn't a reminder we need that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity. That doesn't mean unity at all cost. I well, you know the strong things that Paul writes and says. We studied the book of Jude. But you know what Jude says? As he gets near the end of that letter, it's the unbelievers who have infiltrated the congregation who caused divisiveness. We can't be tolerant of false doctrine. But so many of the issues come. Well, it's not doctrinal. This is not about doctrine. Then it's about something that should not be a dividing issue. That doesn't mean the Lord doesn't lead people to a different church at different times. You want to be where God wants. But I want to be careful. Why am I going? Why are you here? You're here because, well... I needed the teaching. I thought this is where we could grow. This has happened not too long ago. I had people come and people were going, the doctrine's weak. The teaching, I would have to say, is not very good. What are you doing there? Why would you be there? That's not true of every. We've got Bible-believing churches in town that teach the word wonderful. They're telling me the teaching's poor. What are you doing there? The church is the pillar and support of the truth. We're called to defend the truth, and you're going where you say, Well, they're pretty weak. Then get out. You don't have to come to go to another place. Fine, people say, you know, the teaching is clear, it's strong, it's what we needed at this time. Wonderful. Pour yourself into it. Believers, we claim are Bible believing Christians, you know, the things that start, the cracks that come, these kind of things, we just weaken. We are preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word bond is basically connected to the same word prisoner up in verse 1. Paul is the prisoner of the Lord because he's in bondage. as we, the prisoner is. we we'll be chained. He's confined. So here, the bond owning us together is the bond of peace. That unifies us. We're not at war with one another. We're tearing each other apart. You know, sometimes things that hurt, misunderstandings, unfairness. I mean, we are a process of growing. Sometimes we say things, do things, treat people, and it wasn't thoughtful. If that happens to you, you have to say, God, maybe this is an opportunity for me to grow in grace. But What's concerned is my response. You know, the only thing I control in all these situations is what I do. Maybe God's brought that into my life so that I could grow and learn to handle it. And I wasn't treated fairly. And maybe what they did was unthoughtful, unkind. I can't change them. But I can be sure that I handle it in a way that's honoring to him. I mean, I wouldn't need to do all these things. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, preserving unity. If everybody always did just the perfect thing to me, I don't always do that to others. So we understand and we concentrate. Lord, this is an opportunity for me to grow. What they did was mean-spirited. I think it was unkind. I think they intended it to hurt me. But that doesn't change how I have to conduct myself. What I have to do, you know, takes the pressure off me because I'm always upset about what somebody else is doing. I'm always upset about something I can't change. So I say, Lord, this is the opportunity for me to grow. And through that, they'll grow. And that's the process. We're showing tolerance in the bond of peace. And there's a series. Seven times God uses the word one. He could have just lumped it all together. In verse 4, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. He could have just said one body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God. He uses the word one seven times. And he uses even three different Greek words for one. That just reminds you here. gets your attention so you don't lull in. These oneness join us all together. Because if there's only one of each of these things, where's the division coming from? They shouldn't come from the externals, Jew and Gentile. It couldn't, shouldn't come over whether you eat a ham sandwich or not. Both can give on this. And either one can give for the good of the other. If eating causes my brother to stumble, I won't eat. And the other brother has to realize it's a freedom they have. You know, each one's responsible for how they handle it not for how the other person does. When that happens, we grow. There is one body. That's the body of Christ, the church. We talked about that at the end of chapter 1. Christ is the head of the body. The Spirit has put us together in one body. Chapter 2, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, one body. Now, I realize there are a variety of local churches That's fine. Each individual local church is to be a representation, I take it in fullness, of what the complete body is. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, telling them about the fact. When he says one body, it doesn't mean the only body. There's one universal body that all the local bodies are part of, true. But each local body is to manifest that. Remember in the letter to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, each one is evaluated individually, accountable and responsible to be all that God intends them to be. So we are accountable here and responsible. There's one body, one spirit that brought about the one body, put us in the one body. Okay, the one, that means two, so... If I'm out of step, I'm out of step with the Spirit. Something's wrong here. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Our calling came with a hope, and inheritance. Chapter 1 talked about. Can we keep going back? The hope is that which we yet anticipate. It's not doubtful. It's not uncertain. It's not just realized. It's the Romans 8, the whole creation groans in anticipation of the unveiling of the sons of God. There's part of our salvation that we have not yet experienced and will yet enter into. And then the glorious reign with Christ in his kingdom. We all share the same hope, the same goal, the same assured ending. One Lord, one Lord. Well, if two slaves are fighting against one another, something's wrong. There's only one Lord. Are we both doing his will in his way as he instructed? Then what's the fight about? There's one Lord. Well, that means he's in charge, not me. One faith. I take it that's the faith that we place in Christ. The faith that is brought about our salvation. Let me read you a verse out of Romans chapter 3, verse 30. You don't need to turn there unless you want to jump there. But Romans chapter 3, verse 29. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Same idea, remember. We're going to be brought together, Jew and Gentile. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith... And the uncircumcised through faith is one. So you see, the salvation, same faith. The Jew must place their faith in the finished work of Christ. The Gentile must place their faith in the finished work of Christ. We have one faith that's bound us all together. Everyone here who is truly a member of the body of Christ, God's salvation, shares the same faith. We placed our faith in Jesus Christ. As the one and only Savior, the one who paid the penalty for our sin. There's only one faith. Come back. There's one baptism. A lot of people go drifting off here. Every time they see the word baptism, they think, well, it's talking about water baptism. There is a place for water baptism. It's important. Let me read you 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you can turn there if you want. I'm going to read you a couple verses here. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. You see the similarity in context. But one and the same spirit works all these things. We'll get to that later in Ephesians. It's the spirit who gives the gifts. It's one and the same spirit who's doing the work. For even as the body is one and has many members of the body, we're all members of the body. They are all many, but they're one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were made to drink of one spirit. That's what he's talking about with the one baptism. It's the one Spirit. It's the baptism of the Spirit. It's that work of the Spirit, Romans 6, that identified us when we placed our faith in Christ with his death, his burial, his resurrection. That was a spiritual transaction so that God could justly declare my penalty paid because he views me through the death of Christ and his death is credited to me as my death, payment on my behalf. We have the same thing. In the book of Colossians chapter two, in that context you 'll know some go take you there for water baptism for salvation. Read the context. He talks about circumcision, but he says it 's not a circumcision with the hands. it 's a circumcision of the heart without the hands. he 's talking about spiritual reality. Then he uses baptism, another spiritual reality. Water baptism only gets you wet. You can't wash away your sins, but it is a testimony that you're being identified with Christ and the cleansing he has brought to your life. And the Bible knows no such thing as a believer who hasn't been baptized. So you need to take that seriously. Come back to Ephesians chapter 4. There's one God and Father of all. We'd agree with that. We read that in Romans. Since there's only one God, there's only one way of salvation. And that's through faith in Christ. There's one God and father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. He's talking about believers here because we're talking about the church. You could say, well, there's a sense he's sovereign over all. But that's not the context he's talking about. For believers to understand the unity and the oneness and the importance of right conduct he is over all, through all, and in all. The one God. You know, all those ones. Now, that shows the unity that has been brought about because every one those is true of everyone who is a child of God. You place your faith in Christ, you're part of this one body, the work of the one spirit. You have one hope. And it's all there. Oh, this is serious business because what God is doing today in the world is building his church. We as a local church, along with other believing local churches in Lincoln and other parts in this country and other parts of the world, each one is to be a testimony of the power of God's salvation to do what we can't do. Our country's being torn apart more and more by its diversity and differences, and we're going to fix it, and the more we fix it, the worse it gets. But you know what? They ought to come to the church and see. There are people there who are very poor, very rich. People there of one race or another. I wish we had more diversity. We don't want to start a church in the part of town for this race, the church in the part of town for the people who are this social standing. It's a denial of what God says. I want to put you together. And your togetherness with your differences is a testimony to the world of what I have done. And you know what? You love each other. And it's a love that, what? The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's a testimony. the world we are a work of God we're not perfect God's still at work in us and through us but we want to be contributing and being what he created us to be so that we can bring him the honor the glory and his work in us will produce a testimony for himself let's pray together thank you Lord for the riches of your word Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us with clarity, truth to be understood. Thank you for your spirit who dwells in each believer individually and dwells in us as a body of believers corporately, a truth that is true of every group of believers gathered as your church wherever they are, in this city, in this state, in this country, and worldwide. And Lord, I pray that we, as a local church here, would be careful that these truths, so rich, so precious, it's the truth of the salvation that you have accomplished for us and provided for us in Christ, is clearly manifest and evidence as we continue to grow together. Pray your word will be worked out in our lives, even as we go out today bless the day before us whatever you have for us in Christ's name amen thank you for listening to this message from sound words a ministry of indian hills community church make sure to download our app from itunes or google play for more messages like the one you just heard if you would like to contact us please email soundwords@ihcc.org or give us a call at 402 Four eight three four five four one.